0: Well, good morning. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors at our church. We invite our young people to go to Children's Church where they'll be learning about worship and being prepared for re-entry in a fuller way in the not-too-distant future. We're continuing here with a sermon series in the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. It has within it hope as well as the reality of conflict that is guided and directed with a series of heavenly visions. Today we'll be reading from a section in chapter 12. Uh, It is a a vision that shows a battle in heaven, realities of spiritual warfare that shape us here on earth. I'll read this passage and uh, together we will um, affirm that it's God's word. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12 and then Verse 17, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Verse 17 Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. The title of this book is Revelation. We've been saying throughout that what John is doing, he's using heavenly visions, using symbolism in these visions, these visions given by God, using that symbolism to show us real things that are happening. Spiritual truths are being revealed. It's important we keep that in mind because reading the book of Revelation is often not easy and it's sometimes confusing to know what's happening. But John's intention is to reveal things that we need to know. When something is revealed, a truth that is already present is made known to different people in a new way. Uh, over the last uh, couple of years, maybe a, a decade or two, uh, gender reveal parties have become uh, important uh, ceremonies for some parents. Uh, the process works something like this, and, and I don't think people did gender reveal parties when I was having children or at least I didn't know about it uh, but your your, your uh, technician who does an ultrasound can give you a little note you take it to a company and they will give you some object and that uh, that object can be uh, uh, disclosed at a party and everyone will find out that oh, we're having a boy or a girl All right so it could be a you know a, a blue or pink softball um, or, uh, you know, a cake, or a smoke bomb, or something like that. And uh, you go, and, and at that party, something that's already true, right? That Your child isn't changing at the party, but something as true as being revealed. You're all learning, oh my goodness, you're going to have a boy, you're going to have a girl. Sometimes gender reveal parties don't go exactly the way people planned. In uh, 2020, in Southern California, a gender reveal party used a smoke bomb to reveal a young couple's child. Unfortunately, the smoke bomb revealed other things than what they had intended because the sparks from the smoke bomb caught fire in that dry area. The fire spread quickly and soon across two counties of Southern California, 22,000 Acres of ground were revealed. <laughs> All right, the trees, the foliage, the grass, they were burned and the ground beneath them was exposed. It's a terrible tragedy, really. But it certainly wasn't what anyone had in mind when they went to the gender reveal party, right? They thought they were going to smile, celebrate as a boy, eat some cake. And disaster was revealed. Well, as we come to this part of the book of Revelation, many modern readers reading through the book can feel like this is a revelation they were not prepared for. Now, that is to say, I'm not sure you're prepared for anything in the book of Revelation. It's been full of fantastic images of wild things that both help us and challenge us. But in the passage we're looking at today, John reveals to us a a truth that's also revealed in many other places in the Bible, but is a difficult revelation for modern people. He tells us that in the world, the difficulties and challenges that we face have many roots, but one of the causes is a real and personal spiritual power of evil that is working against the church. What is revealed in this passage is essentially... Spiritual warfare is an undergirding or a structure that, that shapes the realities of the experience of church life. Now, as we look at this passage, we want to do three things. Well, first of all, look more carefully and show what is revealed about the dragon, about the devil, about spiritual warfare. What is revealed and how do we make sense of it? Secondly, we'll ask very practical questions. It's meant to be a practical book, and, and we can be distracted by uh, some of the challenges we face thinking about this as, as modern Western people. But there's incredibly profound challenge, uh, important lessons for us as we read through this section. But finally, we'll do something a little different, and we're hoping to, to have enough time at the end just to pause and to respond in prayer together as we think about these realities. We'll not only uh, learn about them, but we'll seek to put some things into practice as we pray together uh, today. So uh, those three things as we move forward, what's it mean, how do we use it, and then we'll, we'll close with just a little bit of a longer season of prayer than normal. Um, so what do we mean? What, is re- what do we mean when we say spiritual warfare is revealed? Uh, we can break this into three parts, and the first is to say uh, the Bible teaches that there's a, a real spiritual personal Presence in the world that is causing problems in general, but particularly for people. Now, again, if you were uh, coming from another part of the world, different culture, or if you lived at a different time, this wouldn't seem like a particularly difficult revelation. Most people across the world and most people in history have believed in spiritual powers at work in the world. Now, for many, this was a source of, of great terror and great uncertainty. Uh, And many, many types of uh, religions in the world attempt to help people deal with these frightening realities. Uh, But for modern Western people, we are distrustful of things we can't see. When the Bible tells us that there is a real spiritual power in the world, what what we're being told is that God, who is above all things, has created spiritual beings that have freedom to war against each other. These beings don't exist in the physical world the same way that we do. And as such, they're not open to investigation, examination, or scientific measurement. Now, that's sort of the, the ground rules going into it. And so we admit you, you, you can't really do an exact test for this. Uh, In spite of that, huge numbers of Americans actually do believe, about half of Americans believe that there are uh, ghosts or spirits or some sort of power out there, whether that's framed in a, a Christian worldview or not. And in recent years, television shows like Ghost Hunters have gained in popularity, and some people attempt to use scientific measurements to examine these types of things. But generally speaking, Christians recognize that there are things that may be real that we don't measure and control, and we don't observe them the same way as we do other things. For Christians, that flows from our central belief that there is a God who is outside of our physical reality, who made all things, who is spiritually present. Now, if, if you accept that premise, believing that there are other spiritual beings isn't necessarily that much further. But I think in many ways, our, our culture has a bias against these sorts of beliefs maybe it was is because that for uh, you know many years uh, christians believed that one of the ways you put the devil in his place was to make fun of him and so we might see pictures of a a, you know a a red guy with a tail and horns and a pitchfork and we say i'm not going to believe in that the biblical view of angels and demons is not really that in fact, uh, the New Testament tells us that uh, Satan would prefer to show up as an angel of light. He would take the garb of something attractive, something uh, seductively alluring. And he's not, he's not, certainly not going to show up at a party with a pitchfork and horns. The, what we're presented here with is this premise that there is a real spiritual power at work in the world. And again, uh, I recognize that can be challenged for us in many ways, but if God is real, if there is a real spiritual reality beyond what we can sense, there's really not that much more to recognize. There may be forces and powers present in the world doing things that are particularly troublesome. When we look at the passage, uh, we see that what, uh, what John is showing us, us is that this term dragon is symbolic for this real Personal power of evil. Verse 9, he says, The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. In 1968, the uh, famous rock band, the Rolling Stones, came out with an album, Beggar's Banquet, and on that they included a fairly controversial song, Sympathy for the Devil. In that song, uh, Mick Jagger, the lead singer and author, uh, co-author of the song, uh, sang about the work of the devil in history from a first-person perspective. Uh, The the powerful uh, and haunting uh, melody asks the question, uh, who am I? And in that song, uh, they uh, ironically probably give one of the best modern depictions of the devil. I say ironically because many people were quite alarmed. It's a one thing to, to sing about the devil, it's the other to sing in the first person as if you are the devil. The powerful, uh, in, in, interesting, and I would dare to say biblical imagery of the song suggests that at the greatest moments of disaster in human history, there was a force and a power and a present. A, Presence at work in the world, moving humans to a greater evil than they would even come up with on their own fallen selves. Mick Jagger sang that of World War II riding a tank in the general's rank as the blitzkrieg raged and the bodies stank. It was a catchy song, controversial in its time, but when I hear it, I always have mixed emotions. Not only sounds good, it's not only a little uncomfortable, but I think there's a, there's a window into reality there that even pop culture recognizes. Sometimes at our darkest moments, there's something happening more than just humans being human. That's the reality that we're being invited to here. Fortunately, there's more than that. Left to our own, we would hear of those realities and we would perhaps be overwhelmed by them. But John wants his people to see something else. He not only shows them that there's a real personal power of evil in the world, but he tells us that power has received a definitive defeat. If we were to go back to the section of Revelation that some of you were reading yesterday in our in our blog as we move through this book of Revelation, uh, what we see is a picture of the devil, the dragon fighting against the woman who is giving birth to a son. And what we understand there is that as is, is typical in the book of Revelation, John is recapitulating, he's going back, he's looking at the story of the New Testament, the story of the church, and he shows how that in the earthly ministry of Jesus, not only in his birth but in his life, he is opposed by this power of evil by the devil. Those students of the Bible familiar with the Gospels know that at certain key places this figure shows up, seeking to turn Jesus aside from his mission. But praise be to God, Jesus is not turned aside. He is successful in his mission. He goes forward living a life without sin and complete faithfulness to God. And yet in a moment of climactic uh, uh, conflict, Jesus is betrayed by those closest to him. He's betrayed by his own people. He's murdered by the Roman Empire, hung on a cross to die. But in so doing, he takes upon himself freely and willingly the sin of all his people. Jesus wins a definitive battle. In a sense, in this first section, verses uh, uh, 1 through 6, that is uh, depicted In the book of Revelation is a battle between this woman, her son, and the dragon. And what we see as we look at this passage now, that as this battle was won on earth, the consequences were felt in heaven. He speaks of a war in heaven, of Michael, a leader of the angels, just as this dragon or Satan would be a leader of the demons. They are created spiritual beings in some sense at war with each other. John would have to tell us about this in symbolic language because it's not something we would understand any other way. I really don't know what this means, and no one does, except that there is a battle or a conflict, and in that battle, verse 8, the dragon is defeated. There was no longer any place for him in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brother and has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. What uh, John is showing us here in partic- uh, pictorial form through this vision is is that on the cross through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, a defeat has been given to our spiritual enemy. Now again, there are things in here we only know hints of. The Old Testament uh, in the book of Job shows a picture of Satan, the accuser, in a sense in, in the throne room of heaven making accusations against God's people. And scholars have pointed out that until the final answer against sin was given on the cross, the devil actually had grounds for his accusations. The people of God who, who, whether in life or death, came into the presence of God in worship, there would have been grounds to accuse them. Their sin would have haunted them. And yet after the death of Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, That on the cross, Jesus took away the power of all spiritual opposition. I think that's what John has in mind here. There is a final and ultimate spiritual victory on the cross. So that we can hear in the the words of Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if you are in Jesus by faith, trusting Him, if He is your Savior and your Lord... Your sin cannot be held against you. The accusation of your weakness, your failure, your sin, and your wrongdoing does not have ground to stand. The accusations cannot hold because of the victory of Jesus on the cross. Your sin can be forgiven. There is an absolute victory that is there. There's a third part of this series, this series of visions about uh, this, really one vision about the dragon has the the first victory on earth of Jesus, then the victory of the angels in heaven, but then we are left with the ongoing reality of spiritual warfare. Just as there's a celebration of this full and final victory in verse 10, there's also along with it a note of warning Rejoice, O heavens, verse 12, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And what we see as the book of Revelation goes forward as this spiritual battle plays out in the life of the church. A summary of that in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This picture will actually give direction to things happening in the next couple of chapters in Revelation. Revelation. What John is saying is that if you are following Jesus, you are now part of a war here on earth. There is a definitive victory that's already been won. Your your soul is safe in Jesus. The accuser has no ground against you. And yet as the life of the church unfolds here and now, we are in a state of war. That war takes several forms, the war of our own hearts against God, God's goodness, the remaining sin within us turns back and misdirects us and guides us in all kinds of wrong directions we war against our own hearts. And, and the system of humanity around us guided by fallen humans seeking to be separate and autonomous from God, that, those systems of human thought are always moving us, washing us downstream away from God. We battle against the flesh and the world, but John in his revelation shows us there is a layer of the conflict that we often, particularly as modern Western people, we often ignore. He says there's a spiritual dimension to this as well. I list all three of those things because when Christians talk about spiritual warfare, we don't want to go overboard and suggest everything that's happening is some spiritual battle. There's a whole lot of other stuff happening as well. I've got, uh, there's an, an old comedian, is quite dated by now, but every time he would do something wrong, he would say, the devil made me do it, right? That's not really true. I have all kinds of sin in my own heart that I struggle against, right? It's not as if I'm, I'm a, a good blank slate and only the devil comes in and does something. i got my own problems, and humans gather together, they're coming up with all their own ideas, and we have all sorts of other challenges going on, but John says there's a layer of the conflict you can often miss, and he is revealing it to us. Here's what you need to keep in mind as you see the conflict. Not only is the conflict real, but the, the, the power at work in the church is greater than the spiritual enemy in the world. All of, all of biblical teaching on, on spiritual warfare goes along on these rails. It says there's a, there's a power that's real, but the power in you is greater. There's a power, an evil power that's real, but it is limited by God's sovereign power and direction. The, the, the conflict we see in this passage, technically speaking, is not really between God and the devil as if God in his sovereign power as creator who made all things is sitting in heaven saying, oh man, I hope he doesn't get one over on me. The devil is fighting first against Michael and the angels. Again, a reality we don't fully understand. But the real take-home point is he's fighting against the church. You have an enemy. If you follow Jesus, you have a spiritual enemy who is dedicated to the destruction of your soul. That's a difficult revelation, isn't it? Wouldn't you rather know that? Does it really help you to pretend that's not true? Here, here's, here surprise! Right? With, the, with the smoke bomb colors of flames and dark black smoke? Surprise! Right? And not, not, only, uh, not only is he committed to the purpose, but John tells us he is working overtime. His wrath is furious. His time is short. In the grand history of all the created world, the time now before the end of history is comparatively short. That ancient dragon, the demon, knows he's got to work hard now. It's a different frame to think about your life, isn't it? The power is limited. That's what we're told. God has absolute victory. Your souls are safe in Him. And he will have the final word on all that happens. But the conflict is real. I just want to turn and, and think about that for a second. We've talked about what is being revealed. I just want to think about how practical this is for your lives. How does it change your life if you recognize you are in a spiritual battle and the conflict is real? A couple uh, take-home points here we can think about. The first is that when you're following Jesus and doing the right thing, things don't automatically get easier. That's a really important takeaway message. We know that Jesus brings peace. The God, our Creator, controls all things, and there are times where, following Jesus, we just see the power of God on us, moving aside barriers and obstacles for a reason we don't understand. There are times where God just clears it all aside, and we see the fullness and the fruitfulness and the joy and the beauty. Maybe for you, you had a pretty radical point in your life where you were going one way and then you turned the other way, and it's as if God was pleased to pour out for a season of time abundant blessing and relief and grace, like the eye of a hurricane. But that's not how the Bible generally predicts and describes a Christian life. It says if you follow Jesus, you will follow him into conflict. Jesus said, if you want to live for righteousness, really, you'll find persecution. He said, if you follow me, the same things that happen to me will happen to you. We've been describing this for many weeks at church using the phrase cruciform life. If we walk with Jesus, we not only see the power of the resurrection, but we are shaped by him in the pattern of his life, which was humility and conflict, suffering, then resurrection both those things will be present. We expect to see in our lives incredible resurrection power as God bears fruit in us, but that happens in the midst of conflict. Everyone I know who moves forward in a particular type of ministry where their life takes greater focus around service and advancing God's kingdom almost immediately faces challenges. Some of those come from the world. We just see obvious level, right? Oh, this is humans posing me. But sometimes they happen on levels we can't describe otherwise. I don't have an explanation. I'll just tell you what I know. If you say, I'm going to commit to a new way of serving God, you will probably experience conflict in ways you hadn't seen before. I was uh, ordained in the summer of uh, 2024. Oh, I'm sorry. 2004, (laughs) it'll be two decades in 2024, Uh, it was uh, wonderful, the summer before, oh my goodness, I'm off on this story, okay, (laughs) graduated seminary some year. Started working full-time for my church, was moving towards ordination, moved into the city of Boston, uh, saw wonderful confirmation and God's blessing in so many ways, and then the bottom dropped out of our life. It's really hard. We had a really, really hard season immediately after entering ministry. I I got as sick as I've ever been for a couple of weeks, completely laid out. My my son Isaac was born, and three days after his birth, he was diagnosed with a stroke and spent 10 days in the NICU, really hanging on right uh, on on, on the edge between uh, uncertainty about his future. Very, very difficult season. If you look at all my life, all the things that happened, difficulties, challenges, all this stuff, you would see a huge grouping right around a certain period of time. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I don't have a mathematical formula for you. All I'm saying is when you walk through it, you, you say, you know what John is revealing makes sense? You could, you could ask anyone. And, and this isn't just for professional, professional Christians, so to speak. What John is giving us here is for every person. Let me ask you a challenging question. Is the goal of your life to avoid conflict or to pursue God? a very subtle temptation for us modern Western people to think that the goal of the Christian life is to avoid all possible conflict and live the most peaceable life possible. And you can achieve that to a large part if you back away from every, everything that would advance the gospel. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? The things that we do that follow God most closely will sometimes bring some of the harder things into our lives, and it's not an accident. whole bunch of things, my sin, our world, but there's something else going on. If you, haven't felt, if you haven't felt it now, you can test it pretty easily. Make a new commitment, move forward in a new way, embrace a new ministry, share your faith with your neighbor, start moving forward with the purposes of God in the world, see what happens. All right, I got money stories. I'll hold them there. Let me just simply close with a few thoughts and we're gonna try and pray. Let me challenge you this way also. If you look at your life in these, through the frame of reference John gives us, he'll not only show us that conflict is sometimes a necessary part of following Jesus, he'll also show us that the conflict is different, really actually at the end of the day different than what we often think. You know, we live in a, a culture today that is so deeply divided and so highly polarized that most Americans won't have to think very long before they can name their enemies to you. Isn't that true? What, what spiritual warfare tells us is that yes, the world has fallen and people in their own sinful desire for autonomy do terrible things to each other and you can be hurt. But it tells us that that person, that flesh and blood person on the other side of the street, on the other side of the political aisle, on the other side of the cultural divide is not your ultimate enemy. It's not a naive view about the reality of our human differences or the things people want in this world. It's a biblical view about the nature of the true conflict. I made this argument in a greater form a few few weeks ago as we finished 1 Peter. But I think a healthy view of spiritual warfare and conflict actually de-escalates the rest of the conflicts that we're in. The Apostle Paul says, you're not really fighting against flesh and blood. That flesh and blood person that has opposite views, and they could actually be pretty terrible, they are a potential object of grace. mercy. There's no one you meet in this world, no one, no human being who is beyond the mercy and the grace of God in Christ. And so when you have your conflict, you can remind yourself, you know what, they're not the actual end of the day final enemy. In fact, they could be my brother, my sister. We who are opposed now, might find in God's surprising, unveiling work of grace to be friends and family for all of eternity. Doesn't that change the way we view things? What being, again, I'm arguing here, I think, ironically, the thing that we are challenged to receive as modern Western people is the thing we most need. There's a battle going on and it's not against who you think. So what do we do? Uh, what do you do? You can't actually fight physically against a spiritual battle. You do two things. John says you continue with the word of your testimony even when you suffer. You see, the, not only is the battle different, the victory is different For John, in the book of Revelation, the victory comes when the followers of Jesus continue to follow the Lamb who was slain even when it's costly. See, the world shapes you to think you're winning when you're not suffering, but John says when you're faithful even in suffering, you win. The greatest victory of all is announced here. All other victories lead up to it and follow under it. Verse 11, they conquer By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have not loved their lives even unto death. John says simply, when you are willing to follow Jesus, being formed into the pattern of his crucified life, when you are faithful with him in the power of the Spirit, you are winning. Even in the, the short term, what you feel is suffering. You're, we're able, we fight the battle when we say, I will continue on even when it hurts. That's how you win. Finally, we fight the battle in prayer. C.S. Lewis had the theory in one of his books that the strategy of the devil was in the Western world to lay low, not to show up quite so much, in a different plan. He thought, you know what? I accomplish my purposes better when people don't know I'm here. Now, that's a theory of a 20th century writer. But I do know this. When the battle is revealed, Christians start to pray. Anytime you've had a moment where you've had a glimpse or a feeling or a sense that, yeah, you know what? This biblical truth might be the thing happening in my life. Almost universally, every Christian I know has the same response. They start praying that's a really good response if you knew there was a battle of spiritual things then you would pray in the spirit to our all-powerful god to work because you would absolutely know that you can't fight the battle on your own so we're going to pray just going to pray for a moment i'm going to pray for three things And I'm going to pause. I'm going to ask you to pray either silently or softly. Sometimes it helps to to softly say your prayer. These are going to be for yourself as you think about what's going on. We're going to pray together. We're going to pray for three things in closing. First is this. We're going to pray that we would see the battle rightly and see see the people around us properly. Invite the worship team forward. Thank you. Secondly, we're going to pray for courage in the face of opposition. Third and finally, we'll pray that God would be at work, that He would reveal Himself to our neighbors. I'm going to pray. We'll pray silently, and I'll close us uh, each of these three things, and we'll be done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we ask that You would help us to see our world and our conflict rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that in the midst of conflict, you would give us courage, boldness, to live for Jesus and speak for him. We pray together in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, we pray that you would reveal yourself to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, our our friends and our enemies. Would you reveal yourself in powerful ways and even now we think and speak to you of particular people in our lives. We ask that you would be revealing yourself. Would you do what we can't do? Father, we pray that your kingdom would come, that you would protect us from evil, and that you would cause the glory of Jesus to be increasingly made known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.